0: Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show we begin our on-site coverage of the 50th anniversary of the founding of the American Indian Movement. Miguel Gavadal Molina is on the ground and on the reservation today with American Indian Movement co-founder Bill Means. Means is also the co-founder of the International Indian Treaty Council and an eyewitness to the deadly FBI siege at Wounded Knee some 50 years ago, which gave birth to the American Indian Movement. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We are happy to have you along with us today. And we are proud and delighted to have members of KPFA and the Flashpoints team on the ground, on the ground for the 50th anniversary of the founding of AIM. And, uh, of course, uh, leading the charge there is our own Miguel Camilan Molina. uh, And, uh, Miguel, why don't you tell us uh, something about uh, our guest today? And welcome. Where are you?
1: Uh, We're actually at the uh, uh, KILI radio uh, facility here in uh, Rapid City and uh there's an incredible program set up for tonight. uh It starts with a supper, then a welcome by the board chairman and then uh Bill is gonna open up the program uh the recognition of contributors, the presentation of awards. there's gonna be a hand drum competition and a poetry slam uh and of course, honoring all of those that were there fifty years ago and closure That's today's program and uh there's uh all. You know, the rest of the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, uh, we'll be doing continuing coverage. But right now, I'm going to pass uh, the phone over, well, not the phone. He has the phone uh, Mr. Bill Means, as you said, Dennis, one of the co-founders of the American Indian Movement and the uh, International Indian Treaty Council. But he's also been a force here in establishing uh, the local Lakota uh, Native American radio station, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Now I'm going to now I'm going to pass it over to you, Dennis, and, and uh, Mr. Bill Means is ready to go.
0: Thank you, and friends, and, and uh, thank you, uh, Gavilan, and the the team on the ground there. Uh, very much appreciated. Looking forward to all the good material. Bill Means, we are so glad that you could talk to us. We're honored that you would talk to us today in this 50th uh, anniversary celebration of the founding, of the birth of the American Indian Movement. And let's just jump right in. What well, what happened some 50 years ago uh, that led to this movement? Uh, certainly, in part, it was the ongoing endless genocide of the United States government against uh, the Indigenous communities of North America. Uh, sort of set the scene. What was going on 50 years ago, and why did there have to be uh, an uprising?
2: Well, first of all, the conditions on the reservation were astoundingly bad in terms of the, any social measurement that we use, And uh, we had the. Uh, Highest rate of tuberculosis at the time. We had uh, high crime. We had low un- I mean, high unemployment. Uh, we only had, uh, eight, we had 80% unemployment. We had low education rate. The average uh, person in high school, the average Indian only went to eighth grade in education. And so uh, all these things were very low. This was in, as you recall, 1973. And of course, we went to Wounded Knee. We chose that spot was chosen by our chiefs and elders because the mass grave that happened, uh, massacre in 1890, happened there at Wounded Knee. So every day we drive by that place and see our ancestors who are laying there buried in a mass grave, the largest uh, killing at the time throughout uh, the Americas. And, of course, they've surpassed that several times now in Guatemala and other regions where our relatives are trying to survive. But the reason why we went to Wounded Knee is the chiefs told us we will not be alone because our ancestors are buried there. And so they're going to help us. And it's going to be tough, but you guys have to be brave. It, that's what they told us. And then we went to Wounded Knee. Uh, the BIA had barricor, barricor, barricaded the federal building and BIA building in Pine Ridge, which is the capital community of our reservation. And uh so we went right through Pine Ridge and went on to Wounded Knee.
0: So uh Pine Ridge to Wounded Knee uh, Bill can I ask you, can you move a little bit away from the speaker because we're getting a little overflow from the mm-hmm. I guess right. the speaker system can that's getting little little feedback. Yeah it's just that oh, if you oh, could do, right here. that's a little better. That's a a little better. Thank you. So, Bill, you at the time were coming out of the the military. You were actually in Vietnam. You were sort of supposedly fighting for uh, the rights of uh, majority Americans. Of course, the Vietnam War was ugly. But really, you didn't have those rights that you were asked to die for.
2: Uh say again uh we're just now starting the program so I kind of got interrupted there by a mistake.
0: Not not a problem. You when you came 50 years ago you were coming back from the US military. You were like fighting in a war supposedly for other people's freedom when uh the indigenous communities of North America were continually being ethnically cleansed. That is that part of the what led to the uprising?
2: Uh, yes, of course, but uh, I think it was very confusing and kind of a contradiction to myself and other veterans because all of a sudden now uh, we were the oppressors in Vietnam and allegedly fighting for our country and honoring the uh, draft of the United States at the time. So uh, it was very tough to deal with those type of contradictions. Well what I like to say is that we were busy on a survival mode. We were surviving, trying to stay alive, and so we we're able to uh, survive by concentrating our life and our world, and and uh, getting back home. So yes, we came back. We found out that. While we were fighting for this country, they were still stealing our land back home for minerals and other extractive industries operating in the Black Hills of South Dakota, where we as a people were born. That's our creation story is in the Black Hills. So that's our Jerusalem. So these are the things that we thought about. And then, of course, we came back to the corruption of tribal government, which is a public government of the United States colonialism, and uh, we were barely uh, able to, uh, at that time, to address the, the, uh, the situation there through the American Indian Movement. There was also a movement locally called the, uh, the uh, Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Department. Oklahoma civil Oscar civil rights organization. And so, uh, they were fighting for the rights of the people, individual rights in, uh, on, the reservation strictly on the Pine Ridge reservation, which at the time had the most, uh, issues with the social standing of our conditions we lived under. And, uh, so we were trying to address those conditions as well as the racism in and around the reservation, what they call border towns. And so in those border towns we, we had uh, Indians chained to the to the side of the jail in various uh, jails around the reservation. We had a young man killed by a white ranchers in Gordon, Nebraska, 1972. His name was Raymond Yellow Thunder. So these issues brought us to Pine Ridge and uh, we were invited there by the Civil Rights Organization and so we just didn't come there out of a whim. We were invited, plus many of us in AIM at the time, which started in 1968. They had been alive working on these social issues for uh, many years, at least about five years before Wounded Knee. So these are, we were involved in, you know, many things like to take over the Bureau of Indian Affairs in November of 72, which was just prior to Wounded Knee, which happened in, of course, February of uh, 73. So less than six months later, we were in Wounded Knee when we came back from the BIA. So we always attack the various uh, institutions that control our life. Greatest enemies of Indian people, we determined as being the United States government, the churches, and education, for all the ways that they tried to edit us out of existence. Like we didn't even know who we were. Even in our own schools on the reservation, they couldn't teach the language. We were punished. if you. spoke the language, or we couldn't hear our song. We didn't have our ceremonies available. So these are things that we were fighting against and for our own civil rights on and off the reservation. So I wanted to say that much as far as why we went into Wounded Knee was because of those conditions. And number one, because of our treaties, we had valid international treaties that were signed by the United States government, passed through the Senate, and became treaty law. But yet, when it came to the time of stealing our land, our resources, in the Black Hills, the gold mining, coal mining, stealing our water, all those things took place prior to Wounded Knee. And even now, today, we're having a presentation on the present. Grab for natural resources. Again, they're coming back to take more gold. What they're doing, uh, not mining through the hill, they're strip mining the Black Hills. And they take thousands and thousands of, uh, we say, uh, land
0: just to say,
2: just to say uh, that uh, they need that money for defense. Are they need the money for the United States Treasury, or they need it for national security. And so they use these laws against us to go around the treaty law. But yet still, we still know that the treaties are alive and well because in Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, it says treaty law shall be the tre- supreme law of the land. So we understand our own history. We know about that. And so uh, we went to Wounded Knee on advice of our chiefs and headsmen, our elders, uh, like I said, because they knew we wouldn't be alone. We'd be there with our ancestors of the massacre of 1890. And so this was the process that we used to choose Wounded Knee specifically by our elders, chiefs, and headsmen. And so this is uh, what brought us there. And then afterwards, we were there 71 days in a firefight with Uh, United States forces, U.S. government, FBI, U.S. Marshal, Border Patrol, BIA police, and several other jurisdictions came to Wounded Knee. Over 500 to 1,000 men came there. And uh, so during that time of 71 days, we had 10,000 Indian people that came from various parts of the country to support us because we, we made Wounded Knee a household name. And people understood that we were under attack by the United States government and this small band of Indian people on the reservation. uh, They came to us and asked for help. through the Oklahoma Civil Rights Organization. So we responded and we thank you for uh, putting this on so we can relive this history, our 50th anniversary And so I'm very, very uh, honored to be on to KPFA for publicizing this event, but also for uh, reminding America that we're still here and we have the right to be here. We're the original people of this land. We didn't come from Asia. We call that the Bering Straits, the BS theory, because it's all a bunch of uh, the BS theory. Excuse my language, but I had to get that in there uh, to talk about the American history.
0: Yeah. Bill, Dennis Burns in here. I want to let people know that we're speaking with Bill Means. Uh we are uh celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of the founding of the American Indian Movement. So the uh the Flashpoints team has uh and other KPFA of ha- KPFA folks have uh, if you will, invaded the region in the Dakotas. Uh, we're speaking with uh uh William Means, he is the founder, co-founder of the American Indian Movement, and Bill, I, I guess I could put it this way, the open wound of the movement and the struggle is the fact that Leonard Peltier, one of the most significant, if not the most significant political prisoner in the world, Still rots in a U.S. jail, and politicians are still shuddering and terrified to release, to do the release, which would uh, is such a dark mark on U.S. Uh, current policy that it's troubling. And the Biden administration, Biden administration, just like the Trumpies, refused to free Leonard Peltier. Why is that important now, Bill? Well, because he represents
2: the treatment of Indian people by the U.S. government. He represents a symbol of the history of America's relations with uh, our Indian people. And so uh, he stands as one of those, one of us who stood at Wounded Knee and after Wounded Knee to protect the elders again in various uh, Communities in which we're being attacked by these paramilitaries who were formed up by the FBI. A lot of this testimony came out in the Wounded Knee trial. So I'm not just making this up. This is a matter of historical and legal records. So uh, I just want to say that, uh, of course, we continue that resistance to uh, deny us our culture, our way of life, and our land and the Black Hills especially, because they're still trying to pay us money for the Black Hills when they're not for sale. That's where we were born as a people. That's our Jerusalem. That's our Vatican. So these are the important things, that we have a right to be who we are. We have the right to speak our language. So I keep bringing these issues up because we're still fighting those battles. Matter of fact, we're going to have a report here and some of our organizing for this event about the water, theft of water in the mining industry. They're polluting our beautiful Black Hills watershed by digging in the ground and using these severe chemicals like hydrochloric acid, sulfuric acid, to separate the ore from the mineral. And they take a half a mountain to get a half ounce of gold. So, you know, that's the type of mining they're doing these days. It's over and above strip mining. At least strip mining they were particular in certain areas. But the mining they're doing now is just overall genocide, overall a uh, type of uh, degradation of Mother Earth. Unbelievable degradation. And a lot of it is in our sacred sites around this country. So we really appreciate this tattoo. Lend our voice to KPFA because our radio station, Kili, K-I-L-I, on Pine Ridge Reservation, we call the voice of the Lakota Nation, started because of station like KPFA. And we came up in 1983. Uh, so it took us 10 years to get started after Wounded Knee, but we took the example of KPFA speaking the truth. To the people, speaking the truth to America, that there's some place you can find the truth about American Indians, and it's on, it's on our radio station, which is K-I-L-I, Kili, which is even a Lakota word in our language that means good, man, strong, powerful, that's what Kili means, beautiful, and so that's reason why we chose that name and those call signs because it has a significant meaning amongst our people. And uh, we thank KPFA again for the inspiration, for the continued solidarity through the years, for helping us. Every chance they got, they come there and advise us on various technicalities of the radio industry. And so we still owe a big favor to the people of KPFA. And now they're here sitting right with us, which is... Uh, <laughs> You know, amazing that they're here amongst our people because they're not trying to report from off off the scene or from another city or another area. They're right here sitting with us, eating food with us, and we really appreciate the presence of KPFA because they're doing a yeoman's job. They're doing what nobody else can do in the Bay Area or other places because they have various restrictions of uh you know policies etc so we really want to appreciate again and thank
0: kpfa well thank you bill i'm I'm going to invoke my uh indian name given to me by you it's Burnstick here it's Uh it's the Sioux and the jew uh and we are so honored to have this kind of connection with you bill and with the american indian movement and the struggles that go on now i'm thinking the, the United States has, in the last year or so, sent $100 billion in military aid to Ukraine. Uh, what do you think the indigenous communities? They don't seem to have anything for the indigenous communities of in North America. You took international, uh, you, you took uh, UN delegations around this country to show how there are there are uh, standards for indigenous communities, and then there's the rest of the folks. Um, how? What? What do you think you all could do with a hundred billion dollars? <laughs> I, I, you know, you. Uh... What's your thoughts on the war and all this? What are you thinking about as you see this unfold? You know, it seems like there's
2: always a war that the United States is involved in. And so we, including war against us, I mean, in uh, 1890, I told you about the mass grave that still exists on our land on the reservation. Also in 1862, they hanged 38, Dakota Indians in Mankato, Minnesota, after a war, uh, because they broke the treaty, they invaded our land, the settlers. They opened up our land for settlers. And in Minnesota, in what they call Minnesota River Valley, richest land for agriculture in the world. And so here we have uh, we have a chance to say some words and remind people, we're still here. We still have the same issues of land, of the environment, of water—water water for life. We say, which we which we say in our language, we uh, wiconi," water is life. And so we taught that phrase to the world during Standing Rock in the late, uh, in the 2000s of uh, I think it was 2020, 2018, around there. Anyway, I leave you with those thoughts of, and again, okay. Leonard Paltier, he deserves to be free. He's been in jail for almost 60 years. And so here we are, or is it, I think it's 40 years. Anyway, it's a long time. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime. 46 years. So I wanted to get that part straight because he deserves to be uh Her old are freed because of humanitarian issues, if nothing else. Just let him be in his later years. Let him go home, see his children and grandchildren. Let him experience life with his family before he has to go to the other side. So this is why we fight for Peltier and why we fight for our land is because The Indian and the land are one. And it will never stop fighting for that because the earth is our mother.
0: Bill, is it? Is there any chance? Is there any opening? There's now, really, for the first time in history, a member, an indigenous member of the U.S. cabinet, uh, the Interior Secretary, uh, very powerful. Is there any hope coming through that door uh, that Leonard could be freed? Well, you know, as you could
2: see, she's just uh, part of the. Uh, United States government, part of the colonial powers that still remain as oppressors to our people. And so I'm not in any way degrading or demeaning her position. The first time we've had an Indian at the cabinet level. And so we expect good things. And I think she's done some good things. Working with Interior to protect our sacred sites is probably one of the most profound things that she's been able to do. But as far as her influence, hopefully, and and she's talked to the president and others about Wounded Knee, but also about Leonard Peltier, that he needs to be released. So we have access for the first time at a cabinet level, and so we really appreciate that she was able to elevate herself through the politics of America to one of the highest positions ever for an Indian. So that's my feelings. Is we congratulate her, but we want to challenge her in a positive way, in a respectful way, to do more. To free Leonard Peltier to stop this massive grab of our Indian resources by the extractive industries. And that's uh, that's my hope for the remainder of
0: her term. Beautiful. Well, again. Uh grateful that you spend this time with us, Bill. We're, we're glad that our team is on the ground, that uh, Miguel is there to uh, haunt you and uh, uh, follow you around with some microphones and uh, do some oral histories of all the extraordinary people who are part of this 50th uh, celebration, 50th year celebration of the founding of the American <laughs> Indian Movement. And of course, at the core right now, one of the key issues has to do with, uh, besides the Extractors that we have to extract oh, Pelt here awesome. from the U.S. prison system. Yes. All right. Yes. We All support right. that. Safe. We work on that every day. Yes, we do. All right. Talk to you soon. Say hello to my brothers right. and sisters. Oh, yes, I will. Thanks a lot for KPFA's
2: inspiration and help through 50 years.
0: Beautiful. Stay safe. We'll All talk right. soon. I wish I was there, but my heart and soul is there with y'all. Be safe. All right. Uh, Thank you very much. Happy celebration. uh, who? You're s- uh-huh. yes. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Big smile on my face. My name is uh, Dennis Bernstick. That's my given name from the American Indian Movement. What an honor it was. People, Some people made fun of me when I said I, I got an Indian name. I'm, it's one of the proudest moments in my life. It's much more important to me than the master's degree that, like, is gathering dust somewhere. I don't even know where it is. I'm Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I don't think Miguel is still with us. We're going to take a short break. You're going to hear, uh, some of you are going to hear a bunch of Miguel uh, at a celebration of his work. He was honored as a part of the huge farmworker pilgrimage that led to crucial rights granted to the United Farm Workers. So some of you will hear that, and some of you will hear me, and maybe we can track Miguel down uh, to help us out a little bit too. But we'll take a break
3: now. I attended the 60th anniversary tribute of the United Farm Workers to the women in the movement who have played vital roles in building the United Farm Workers. We gathered at the historic Biltmore in Los Angeles to honor these women. And recognizing that this 60th anniversary gala honors those who led and organized strikes, boycotts, legislative and political campaigns, and who negotiated and administered union contracts. It also honors the fearless women who continue performing the same duties in the present-day UFW. As women continue comprising a significant portion of the nation's farm labor workforce, their union gratefully Boost a majority of women elected to its national executive board. And this event was to really bring light to the women of the movement who have sacrificed and played vital roles as workers, organizers, strikers, marchers, supporters, lawyers, and as president to continue improving the lives of farm workers throughout California, the country, and the world. Si se puede. And coming up shortly, We're going to be listening to a piece from the work entitled The Walk, a journal of the United Farm Workers 2022 pilgrimage from the Leno to Sacramento. The Walk, a spiritual quest for humanity through California's fields of misery, read by actress Sabina Varela. We'll also hear a speech by former United Farm Workers President Arturo Rodriguez. And we'll get an update on the UFW's national and international work from Armando Lennes, Secretary Treasurer of the UFW, and along with the current president and the first female president of a major union in the United States, Teresa Romero. Stay tuned.
4: I will now read a passage entitled, The Walk. A spiritual quest for humanity through the California fields of misery. A Gavilan's Eye view of the UFW's 2022 pilgrimage. By Miguel Gavilan Molina, Woo! who's present here with us tonight. Berkeley's KPFA radio legend and lifelong activista, chronicler of La Raza and farm worker. Day 17. Friday, August 19th. Modesto Tumanteca. 17 miles this day. 6 a.m. Campesinos are walking slowly, like shadows to the mist of morning dew, toward the gathering area. 7 a.m. We're having cafecito, pan dulces, donas, burritos con huevos y papas, and someone yells out, "Si sí se puede!" and the group collectively responds, "Si sí se puede!" I pull away and face the rising sun. I raise my fist at the soul in defiance and yell, Aqui estamos! Bring it on, sun. I return back to the group. I notice a small group of campesina women coming towards my table. I rise and take off my hat to them and gesture for them to sit at the table. Behind my Ray Charles sunglasses, I can see las mujeres are grimacing with noticeable pain. They proceed hobbling and limping their feet and legs battered and shredded, yet with a smile on their faces and their dark eyes burning with the relentless determination to reach the Capitolio at whatever cost. Bandaged, taped, and wrapped, they are presente. One of them, Lourdes, I think, the eldest of the group, is the silent concrete pillar of determination. Patricia, always with the welcome smile, is a bull of strength amongst the group. Her fierce eyes hide a sadness that I can see. She reaches out and gives me a hug. Cynthia! A stone-cold homegirl, tattooed, pierced with jet-black eyelashes and red lipstick, ready to throw down and yet always with a smile and laughter that is music to the heart. One hell of a tough woman. No se raja. Her feet cut and cracked. She continues beyond the hurt. I'm so fortunate to be chilling and walking with these indestructible women. I tell Cynthia and Patricia that if and when they can no longer walk, I will carry them on my back if necessary. I then take my hat off and salute them. As I look around to see Maria go off by herself, putting distance from the group. She sits on the ground and hand rolls a cigarette old-school style. Slowly drags on the frajo till a burning red cherry appears at the tip. She sits quietly and rubs her legs, calves, and feet while silently suffering. These women, in particular, remind me of my own jefita, determined, relentless, and pushing through pain and hurt with quiet suffering. From time to time, especially during breaks or at the end of the day, some of these mujeres would go off by themselves so no one would see them watery-eyed and suffering. Too many days on the 18 wheel semi-trucks, dangerously and cowardly, rumble by inches from our bodies, men, women, and children. But another vibration could be felt also from La Madre Sangrada. Mother Earth, letting us know she was with us, her sons and daughters, perhaps walking wounded, yet our heads never bowed. A collective spirit and fire in our hearts defying los elementos and the soul itself with meditative, trance-like prayer and our ancestral chants against all odds. We continue on to Sacramento. Thank you, Miguel Molina, for your gift of critical observation and empathy. Gracias.
0: Uh 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 When
5: we started marching, we didn't know what was gonna happen. When I started marching the first day It it was an emotion, it was the insecurity, it was the fear of what we were gonna do, whether or not we were gonna succeed. But we all know that within the UFW, we definitely had the se Puede attitude. And we were gonna do anything that needed to be done to be able to get the governor to sign the bill. We had President Biden supporting the bill. We had Vice President Harris supporting the bill. We had the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, supporting the bill. And we did not, we did not give up. We did not, when, when, we, when I would march with these uh, farm workers, with these women, and when they had the energy And when they had, they left their families for for 24 days. They left their children. They left their income. And some of these women in some of these marches did have a a, a union contract. They were not doing it for them. They were doing it for other farm workers in the state of California because they know (laughs) the difference of having a union the bill was not going to make it, many times we talk about making it an easier for farm workers to vote for union representation. But I think the best work is make it safer for farm workers to work for union representation. Because farm workers, when they, jo- when they try to join the union, when they organize, they're fired. Many people have family members in the same farm they're fired. There have been cases where immigration has been called and farm workers are deported. We can't continue to have that i was I was speaking at a, at a convention of another union before Gavin Newsom signed the bill, and at one point uh, I was explaining to them the march what the bill did, and one um, member of this union You know, asked me a question and he said, What can I do? I'm not from California. And at that moment, all I can think was asking the question Do you eat? Because if you do, if you eat, I don't care where you are from, you benefit from the work that farm workers do day in and day out. You know, we, we last year we did. I guess it's still this year. We invited um, all 100 senators to work in the fields, and uh, because you know they 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 think it's just easy work, anybody can do it. Only two senators agreed to do it, and that's that was uh, Senator Alex Padilla from California. Yes and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. And they did not do it for the photo op. They were there and worked, and they were on their knees, and they were sweating, and they were trying to keep up with farm workers, and they were not even close to it. <laughs> but one important thing at one point, and I, I, I've said this before, but but it stayed with me. One Senator uh, Padilla is on his knees trying to harvest uh, radishes. And he is having a hard time. And the worker who's trying to train him and try to teach him how to do it is efficient, is fast. And, you know, he does it as if, if it was the easiest thing in the world. And the senator looked at him and said... God, you're you're very good at this. How long have you been doing it? And, you know, the worker said, 50 years. And the senator, 50 years? How old are you? And the worker said, 70. And he says, why do you keep doing it? Why don't you retire? And his answer was, you know, I work. I've been working, and I've been paying taxes, but because I don't have documents, I would never be able to collect social security. And he says, how how long are you gonna be working? And the worker said, you know, very matter of fact, I guess until I die, because if I don't work, I don't eat. And that is the reality of many farm workers in this country. When a worker tells me that they are essential workers, but they feel that they're treated as if they were disposable. It is something that nobody, no worker, no individual in this great country of ours should feel. But that is the reality of they, that they face day in and day out. We just heard this from these ladies. That is happening today. When when we think of farm workers, You know, many people don't understand, many consumers don't understand uh, what the work entails, how difficult it is. And I have heard from farm workers that they say that they feel invisible. But the fact that you're here today is a testament that you see them. They're not invisible to you. You understand the work that they do, how important it is, and why we need to make sure that they are protected. And a lot, of the, a lot of the issues that we have is because the workers are undocumented. And that is the reality of things. And Arturo Rodriguez and myself and Diana Tallison, the, the executive director of the uh, UFW Foundation, we're going to be in Washington, D.C., because we need to make sure that we do everything possible to make sure that we get the Farm Workforce Modernization Act to the finish line. Just think about it. Many of you are here with your spouse, with your child, with your parent. Farm workers, because they have been here for decades, they have not seen their child, their brother, their spouse, their parents, their sister in decades. And that, when you have a farm worker that lost a a parent, lost a child, and they cannot even go to the funeral, it is inhumane. And this bill would change all that. It would give the farm workers the security that they could be in this country without fear of deportation. We still have an uphill battle because we have not been able to get 10 Republican senators that would support this bill. That's what we need. 10 Republican senators to support this bill. And Arturo worked with many for for a long time uh, negotiating this bill. And we, we negotiated with growers' associations. We sat down at the table for months and we're still fighting it. There is a person that is here with us today who has been um, a fighter for farm workers for for since I started with the union over 12 years ago. And she has tirelessly advised us, give us, uh, worked with us, and make sure that we do everything possible to make sure that we have a legalization for farm workers. And this is my friend Andrea LaRue. And I wanted to thank you because you have been <laughs> instrumental on the, on the work that we do in Washington. And, and thank you so much. Um, Hoy tenemos aquí con nosotros a mucha gente que nos, nos apoya que apoya el trabajo de los campesinos que sabe la lucha de los campesinos que sabe lo importante que es el trabajo de todos ustedes campesinos y campesinas. Tenemos aquí a los marchantes permanentes que nos acompañaron en el mes de agosto We have here with us. The permanent marchers. That I would ask for you to please stand up. Todos los marchantes permanentes, por favor, levántense. Quiero que los conozcan. Quiero que les demos las gracias. Please welcome them. Thank them for their sacrifice. Se puede. Si se puede. I know many of you joined us at one point or another. We had elected officials joining us. We had state senators, assembly members join us. And they were proud. Some of them were going to march for a day, and they were so inspired, like our our MC tonight, our dear Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher, she can bike and march with us again. And for that, Lorena, we thank you because it was not just marching, it was what you did to get this bill to the finish line. Thank you very much. Arturo marcho con nosotros. Arturo marched with us and came all the way from San Antonio to join us at the march in Arturo, you picked the longest days of the march. <laughs> um, and he's here today. He joined us again, Arturo and Sonia Rodriguez from San Antonio, to be here with us today. Arturo and Sonia están aquí con nosotros el día de hoy. Vinieron de San Antonio porque quieren celebrar a todas las campesinas y los campesinos que han estado luchando por este por este a uh, proyecto de ley, pero especialmente a las mujeres que estamos celebrando este año donde cumplimos 60 años. Muchísimas gracias, gracias por apoyar a a, a nuestras campesinos y campesinas y gracias por seguir luchando para mejorar sus vidas. Sí se puede. Is she not amazing? Que vive Teresa. It's my pleasure to bring up the past president of the UFW, Atulio Rodriguez.
6: Se puede. Muy buenas noches a todos. It's a, a really a distinct honor for myself and for Sonia to be here this evening. There is no other place that I'd want to be but here tonight. With all, these, with all the farm workers that are here joining us, from not only California, but from Washington, from many other places that have joined with us, and to be able to celebrate with them the heroic women of our movement. Tonight, I just want to share about six women, which is a small smithering of all the women who helped build this movement. And when somebody said earlier, we stand on the giants of shoulders, it's true. We stand on the shoulders of women that fought day in, day out, to make sure that we have the UFW here 60 years later. One of those women was Jessica Gouveia. Jessica and her family helped Cesar Chavez from the Bakersfield chapter of the Community Service Organization, the CSO, in the 50s. During the Delano Grape Strike in the 60s, Jessica brought farm worker women to union offers suffering from pesticide poisoning. Growers and local officials blamed the symptoms on heat exhaustion. Jessica insisted it was the pesticides. She was part of landmark UFW lawsuits exposing the toxic pesticides growers were applying that county ag commissioners argued were just trade secrets. More than anyone, Jessica convinced Cesar and UFW to champion resistance to pesticides back in the 60s, which became a major theme of all three great boycotts. Jessica also went to Toronto, Canada, on the first great boycott, was a fearless field organizer across the state from 1970 onward, set up the Robert F. Kennedy medical plan for all the workers in the vegetable industry throughout Salinas, California, and the Imperial Valley, and was elected a UFW vice president in the late 70s. She was a monumental figure in our movement in those early days. Another woman that many of us know and had the opportunity to work with throughout the years was Esther Urundai. She was one of the pioneering women who helped build the UFW from its earliest days. Esther and her husband Manuel were already members when they came to the union's office on September 8th, 1965 to inform Cesar that Filipinos had already struck in Delano in the table grape and the wine grape fields. The Urundaes walked out of the same vineyards on September 20th when Caesar's Union joined the Filipino strike. Esther was one of 44 strikers, including Helen Chavez, arrested by sheriff's deputies for saying the word "welga" on the picket line. She endured all the hardships and suffering of those times. She and her family helped organize the great boycott in Detroit, Michigan in the 1970s. As the longest tenured staff person for the union, Esther held a variety of jobs from the hiring hall in the early days the RFK medical plan and credit union, to administering the Terrones Health Clinic at the 40 Acres in Delano, California, to serving as my first executive assistant after Cesar passed away and I became president in 93. She played a crucial role in ensuring a smooth transition for the UFW after Cesar's untimely passing in 1993. She'll be deeply remembered in our movement, and I'm sure for those of us that you, Esther, she's up in the star. I'm up in the heavens right now, writing her book that she said she would never do until she left. Maria Magaña is another stalwart of the farmworker movement. She was part of the famed Saludado farmworker family from Early Mart, just north of Delano. Maria remembers. Caesar coming to her home in April 1964 for a house meeting. There were so many people in the home that Maria couldn't see Caesar, but she heard his voice and she decided he has a manner of speaking with sincerity that gave you plenty of confidence. Her parents immediately became dues paying union members when the union had nothing to offer but promises of a better life. The whole family joined the Delano Grape Strike on its first day in September 1965. Her entire crew walked out and left the mayordomo standing by himself. She faced abuse and threats on the picket lines. Maria went to organize the boycott in Chicago in 1967, not knowing any English, but she went and later to New York. She worked with the movement from the 1960s onward with her husband, Ralph Magana, and spent years building up the Robert F. Kennedy Health Plan and the Juan de la Cruz Pension Plan, benefiting thousands of farm workers. Another woman that our attorneys know well was Barbara Macri Ortiz. She literally grew up in a movement forged during turbulent times, when the role of women in society was changing. She joined food caravans to Delano in 1968 and got hooked, followed by 20 years of grinding hard work and personal sacrifice. There was boycotting in 30 cities, often amidst extreme weather, Immersing herself in field organizing, learning contract negotiations as Dolores Huerta's assistant, administering union contracts and processing grievances, training workers to assert their rights, and teaching the skills of running their own union, developing leadership, helping lead massive strikes while battling the power and the violence of the growers, being jailed for violating unconstitutional anti-picketing injunctions, returning the union's accounting, running the union's accounting department at La Paz, organizing Punjabi and other workers during the chaos of the first elections under the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in 1975, then negotiating contracts and training staff and workers to to administer them. And if that wasn't enough... Then she decided to become an attorney without going to law school through the novel UFW Legal Apprenticeship Program and serving as a UFW attorney. The next three women that I'd like to recognize tonight come from humble origins from the San Joaquin Valley, Central Valley, farm worker communities. They inspired so many of us because of their fearlessness, their strength and commitment. They all had farm worker backgrounds. The first was Carolina Olguin. After a personal appeal from Caesar, Carolina and her husband, Carmen, joined the 1960s Delano Grape Strike. Over the next six decades, Carolina was a steadfast activist in nearly every major UFW strike, March, boycott, rally, and demonstration from Bakersfield to Sacramento.
4: And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina technical director is Mike Biggs for previous episodes go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net for questions or comments email
0: dennis at kpfa.org thank you for listening